Hey folks, this is To Know the Land, broadcasting from the Treaty Territories of the Mississauga of the Credit from 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Or maybe you're listening to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron. On today's show, I wanted to talk about walking sticks. You know those long insects? You probably, you maybe you've seen them before. If at a museum, uh, in a film, or out in the field, out in the forests. And I wanted to talk about these insects because I do find them interesting. I find them really, really neat. Uh, I think at one point I, I was a bit spooked by them because they're so large or they can be so large because they're so... Uh, they can blend into the landscape so well. And just because I don't know anything about them. So I think that kind of spooked me a little bit, but also maybe drew me in and, and pulled me towards getting to know them more. Because they're pretty cool and fairly charismatic insect. If you talk about a walking stick, people are like, oh yeah, I've heard of those or I've seen one of those. And everybody's got a story because they are unusual. It isn't an ant. It doesn't have the same exact body structure of an ant. And, you know, I just wanted to learn more. Uh, I see them a lot at work when I'm out with the kids, wandering around and, and looking at the land and exploring and observing. Uh, I've seen them a few times this year, three times this year uh, on once the first time I guess was on a cedar tree in a predominantly cedar forest and it was crawling up the tree and moving pretty fast. Uh, I would I would say a male and moving pretty fast up the tree to the point where um, I couldn't get a good good photo, maybe one out of a series of a bunch, but nothing too good. And then I saw them again. Um, in sort of a buckthorn under or mid-story with some old oaks and walnuts and maples as the overstory at the side of a cliff face. And we were just walking through, checking out all sorts of insects that day. And uh, someone had a walking stick insect on their shoulder, just appeared, and everybody got a chance to to look at them, some of the kids held held on to them, and it was quite an interesting experience just getting to see them and hold them. And then most recently, while I was at work, um, I was hanging out with some of the older kids, and we heard a call on the radio if anybody would like to come to a part of the forest where two walking sticks had been found on the side of a tent, and it appeared as if they were mating. And I can't remember what we were doing. People were working on something else. Maybe we had just finished a game. And we were, we were just like, everybody's like, oh, time to go. So everybody from our camp got up and immediately walked, slash, I jogged and ran over to the tent and snuck behind uh, some buckthorns adjacent to the cedar forest. Close to close to a path in a not so sunny area, but probably warm and, and close to the sun adjacent to the path. Where on the back of a tent, there were two walking sticks on a mesh window 
and they were they looked like they were mating. Uh, the female was horizontal on the side side of the tent, but like facing horizontally, and the male was sort of over top of her, maybe above and over top, um, towards the top of the tent, and also above her, and his his abdomen was wrapped sort of around to the underside of her and appeared to be uh, possibly grasping her tail. I'm not quite sure if that's the right word, but I think uh, it looks as if uh, he was grasping her tail. And then I went and explored some... Oh, pardon me. Before I went and explored, uh, a bunch of kids came down. Actually, about 45 kids all cycled through came over and cycled through to see these mating walking sticks. And it was pretty amazing to get all these kids interested and thinking about walking sticks. Um, and these kids ranging from 4 to 14, I believe. So everybody's taking note. Everybody's asking questions. Everybody's interested. And as, as, as instructors, teachers, mentors, we don't know much ourselves. I, I shared a little bit of information, which I'll share with you all today, with one of my other instructors, teachers, mentors. But I don't know much. So uh, all their questions inspired me that I should do this radio show today. I should figure out some more, try and learn more about these insects and see what I can bring back to the school to share with the kids. Because they are some pretty... Well, in the context of insects, they are megafauna. They're huge. So they are much larger than an ant, much larger than a fly. So might as well learn something about them and be able to share. And I'm going to be pulling from a, a bunch of books, a bunch of resources today in in the context of, of trying to sh share and research a bit more uh, about the walking sticks. Yeah, so I'm actually going to start with... Uh, Stephen Marshall, Stephen A. Marshall, he's a professor at the University of Guelph here, and he wrote this huge textbook tome, Insects and Their Natural History and Diversity, on Firefly Press. And I think he offers a pretty good introduction to the order of stick insects, the Phasmatodiae, Phasmatodiae, P-H-A-S-M-A-T-O-D-E-A. Phasmatodiae. Like most other orth orthopteroids, the 2,500 or so species of stick insects, the Phasmatodiae, part of my mispronunciation, are primarily tropical, like the huge species called the spiny devil, sold in some North American pet stores. Despite their formidable appearance, these skinny giants, native to New Guinea, are strictly vegetarian and are relatively safe for students to handle. Some of the big tropical walking insects can inflict a painful stab with their leg spines, but none bite. The common stick insect of northeastern North America, a wingless species called Diaphemora, Diaphemora, pardon me, Diaphemora, Femorata, Diaphermera femorata is rarely seen, although is 
periodically abundant in areas with, of extensive oak forest. The large eggs of these stick insects, which are simply dropped to the ground without any evidence of maternal care, can be found in oak litter during the autumn months. The eggs of some stick insects are routinely gathered by ants, which do not kill the eggs, but instead store them in the parasite-free environment of the underground ant nests. The ants are, quote-unquote, paid for the service by the edible outgrowths on the stick insect's eggs. I'll get into that a bit more later. Stick insect nymphs and adults are protected from predators by a combination of woody camouflage and their twig-like stances. But some species can also change color to match a background color, and others have outgrowths similar in appearance to moss or lichen to further enhance their disappearing acts. In the unlikely event that one of these carefully concealed orthopteroids is spotted and grabbed by a would-be predator, sticked insects still have a few tricks up their skinny sleeves. Some species, including a common one common in the southeastern United States, have a second line of defense in the form of a powerful chemical spray. This unusually fat and cheeky stick insect can direct a spray, which is similar to tear gas in its composition and effect, at approaching birds. A third and more usual line of defense is to, inv- to voluntarily shed appendages. This in itself is not an unexpected escape mechanism among insects, but young stick insects have the unusual capa- capability of regenerating the appendages at the next molt. Adult stick insects, like all adult insects, do not molt and cannot regenerate appendages the way their younger counterparts can. So I've heard of that with spiders as well, which aren't insects, they're arachnids. But I guess I didn't know that with the insects generally. I, I think I've heard about that with the stinky, stick insects before. I think I even wrote about that once. And I'll be reading from that again later. But it's kind of cool. And I want to find their eggs. Because this year, if they're dropping them while they climb the trees and they're, and they're finding, it says you can find them easily. Uh, another book I got, The Complete Insect from Princeton University Press by David A. Grimaldi, just came out and shows a bunch of photographs of stick insect eggs many from around the world, but I think it also includes some from here. So, again, this is an incredibly interesting order uh, of insects with a lot of interesting information out there. And I tried to find some on the internet, but if you know the show, I don't try to pull too much from the internet because... Some of it, I just, I don't know, for some reason, if it comes from a book, I trust it more. That's not a very scientific way of being, I promise you. But um, it's just how it works in my mind, maybe because I can hold it. I wonder if I print out the internet, will I trust it more? I don't know. Okay, so I'm going to read a section from uh, the book Insect Enemies of the Eastern Forests. And this one's written by Frank Cooper Craighead and Frank, oh yeah, probably Frank C. Craighead. And 
Uh, it was published in the United States by the government printing office, Washington, 1950. So lots of lots of stuff going on in here. And I think I want to just name that there's a bit of bias in this book, as can be understood by the name Insect Enemies of the Eastern Forests. So it supposes that insects that have co-evolved with these forests are somehow enemies, not cohabitants. And just like that framing bothers me and irks me. And yeah, I'll just start from there, have that going. Family, Phasmatidae, the walking sticks. Our species of this family are remarkable for the resemblance to twigs but some of the tropical forms resemble leaves. The North American species found in the East have the body elongate, very slender, and subcylindrical, the head, the head free, nearly horizontal, usually subquadrate, antennae long, eyes small, ocelli uh, often absent, the abdomen, el abdomen is elongate, the wings rudimentary, uh, except for one in Florida. The legs, very long and slender, nearly equal in size. They are slow-moving insects and apparently depend on their mimicry for protection. All species are plant feeders, except for the species Diaphemera uh, femorata. Uh, never became abundant enough to be of economic importance. The eggs are dropped promiscuously to the ground during the fall where they remain over winter and sometimes two winters before hatching. The eggshells are hard and resemble seeds or small beans. The common northern walking stick. Diaphermera femorata is widespread throughout the United States east of the Rocky Mountains and at times becomes numerous enough to defoliate the trees over large areas. The black oaks and wild cherries are preferred, but will also feed on other species of hardwood trees and shrubs. Graham reported that logging followed by repeated burning in Michigan was produced that produced nearly pure oak forests, and this condition is leading to walking stick outbreaks. Only recently, fires, which formerly destroyed the eggs, have been effectively controlled in the Oak Hills. Ultimately, the outbreaks may lead to the improvement of the stand by killing the black oaks and allowing, quote-unquote, better species. This is, that's, that's the author writing, better species, such as white oak and red pine, to become more abundant. The spread of walking sticks is slow because they are wingless and are not so active as many insects. The young walking sticks are pale green, but as they become more mature, they change to dark green, gray, or brown. The adult females measure up to three inches in length and are stouter bodied and longer than the males. Most of them molt four or five times and a few molt six times. After the last molt in August, mating takes place and egg laying begins six to 10 days later. The eggs are approximately 2.5 millimeters in length, bean-shaped and polished black with whitish, whitish stripe on one side. 
Again, they're dropped promiscuously from the trees to the ground where they remain in the litter to hatch till the following May or a year from the following May. Under dry conditions, many of the young failed to extricate themselves completely from the egg capsule and die. Two species of tachinid parasites have been reared from the walking stick uh, in Wisconsin. Biomaya genialis and the Phasmophagia antennialis. The latter species gain entrance to the host by laying its eggs on the foliage, which is eaten by the walking stick. Graham also states that several kinds of birds, especially crows and robins, concentrate in infested areas late in summer. For control in Michigan, Graham recommends that the favored black oak type of forest be converted to safer types made up of white oak, other non-susceptible hardwoods, and conifers. Although the use of ground fires uh, during the time the eggs are in the litter will control this insect, it is not recommended because of the damage it may cause. So I'm going to stop there. There's a little bit more about using pretty noxious chemicals as a control. But I wonder, when oak forests uh, were generally managed by indigenous folks using fire, and created these oak savannas where their abundant walking stick inhabitants in these forests where there are lots of walking sticks. And if so, did that promote visitation by birds like the passenger pigeons? Did, did the passenger pigeons feed on the walking sticks? Did other birds that came through feed on the walking sticks? Did turkeys, which were probably more abundant in the areas, uh, scuffle through the ground and find these eggs, which look presumably like seeds, were they munching on the eggs, keeping control of, or keeping keeping the walking stick populations manageable? Or what did they have outbreaks? Were, there, were they still like unmanaged and were there outbreaks of walking stick in the Northeast in these sort of oak savannas that existed here before colonization? I would love to know more. Because it's so interesting how these relatively small species can be linked into these broader communities and these broader understandings of ecology. And um, when we've disturbed these patterns that existed for so long of, of these controlled burns, creating these oak savannas, and then when we've removed species, the passenger pigeon and um, other other species that would inhabit these environments uh, more regularly because these environments aren't there. How has that how has that changed what these outbreaks of of sick insects look like? And it must not have been consistent because the oaks survive. It's interesting. And then who takes over that role of defoliating oaks? It's got to be the Lymantria dispar, the spongy moth, formerly known as you know the, the gypsy moth. If if Lymantria dispar, the spongy moth, now takes over that role of defoliating oaks once in a while, what what is the impact of a defoliated oak every few years on the surrounding environment? Does it allow for other things to get access to sun? But 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just wondering now. I, I, I have no understanding beyond my, my questions and beyond what I probably you're learning about today as well. So, again, that was from Insects, Insect Enemies of Eastern Forests by Frank Cooper Craighead, published in 1950. So it's a little bit older, but yeah. Moving on, I wanted to read um, from the Princeton Field Guide to Insects of North America. And this is a new field guide that just came out. I'll talk about it a little bit later. But I wanted to read the section on walking sticks again because there's a lot of uh, trivia or bonus information. I shouldn't say trivia. There's a bunch of like short notes and information here that I thought are useful and interesting to the study that we're doing today on Phasmatodea, the order of walking sticks. The name comes from Phasmatodea, phasm or phantom, referring to the cryptic nature of the walking sticks, allowing to them to disappear in their habitat. They're often large, elongated, slender, and cylindrical, green or brown body, usually long antenna, wingless except for one species. The tarsi, usually five-segmented, seg things like the foot. The cerci, one-segmented. That's like the weird sort of antenna-like appendages, but on the, on the butt end, on the abdomen, uh, found on vegetation. Some authorities use the term phasma... Phasmida, uh, phasmida for the order, uh, historically included within Orthoptera as a suborder. Orthoptera, they are like the grasshoppers and katydids and such. Um, currently considered its own order, most closely related to the Embioptera and the Notoptera. Embioptera and Notoptera. And, uh, that is the Embioptera are the web spinners and the Notoptera also know the Grilloblatidea are the ice crawlers and they're not in my region, they're not in my range, they're, the ice crawlers live mostly up north on the edges of glaciers and at high altitudes. So not, not a species or, or an order that I, I generally encounter. Um, worldwide, in the Phasmatidea, there's 3,630 species. In North America, there are 29 species. Um, again, they're found worldwide in temperate and tropical habitats. Most species found in Indo-Malayan region. Uh, similar orders are the Mantidea. Mantidea. Can you guess who that is? Mantidea. Yes, it's the mantises. Uh, the prothorax and coxae generally lengthened, front legs modified for grabbing prey, and their tarsi is five-segmented. Se uh, five the hemiptera, hemiptera, do you know who they are? The hemiptera. The hemiptera are the one, what, how do I describe the, the suckers, the like cicadas and the tree leafhoppers and stuff like that, the ones that suck a lot of the juice out of the plants. So, yeah. And then, just to get more information, 
uh, food. The adults and nymphs eat various plant species. Some are generalists, while others are species-specific. Oak species are a common food source. Similar uh, behavior. Similar in appearance to twigs. Will sway back and forth when disturbed. Some species have glands that emix, emit a toxic substance used a defense, as a defense against predators. Nymphs can regenerate lost legs through molting. Some species are parthenogenic. Amazing. I, always, I, I love parthenogenesis. It's amazing. Um, that means that the females can reproduce without a mate. Eggs are generally randomly distributed on the ground. Some eggs resemble the capitulum of a seed and have a nutritious, uh, have nutrients that attract ants to take the egg underground to their colony where they are protected from parasites and other predators. Young sometimes resemble ants. Cool. Uh, they overwinter as eggs and dispersed on the ground. Uh, nymphs are similar to that of the adult, but have fewer antennal segments. They have a single generation per year. Generally not considered a pest species, though they may occasionally occur in numbers sufficient uh, enough to cause damage and kill vegetation. When you're collecting them, they can be shaken from trees using a beach sheet and collected with a sweep net. Some species come to lights at night. And then it shows uh, some images of what the seeds look like and how to count their anatomy and the legs. And again, this book is really neat. Um, Princeton, Princeton Field Guides, Insects of North America, John C. Abbott and Kendra K. Abbott. Uh, yeah, really good book. I like it. It seems to be, if anybody's seen the old Kaufman Field Guide to North American Insects, this one has a similar layout, but a lot more information. Um, so if you're familiar with that one and you like it because it it's pretty general and definitely pocket size, this one's good. How many pages? Almost 600 pages, full color, lots of photos. It's pretty good. Yeah. I also wanted to read from a tracking journal that I made a while ago that I wrote, which uh, I was up near Orangeville. And as we were walking around, or pardon me, I was up near, near Durham County, not Durham the city, but Durham County. And we were going through a plantation. What would I say? It's mostly spruce and pine. And any balsam fir in there? I don't think so. And we were out tracking, looking at uh, deer tracks in the, in the pine needles. Um, and we were looking at deer scat around. And then... While investigating the scat, there was a call to come together and to continue on through the forest in pursuit of a possible red fox den. But as we were together, I felt an insect crawling on my arm. I looked down and got real spooked for a moment. I could only see a portion of the animal, and that portion was a couple of tremendously long legs. The insect was moving quickly, and I didn't spot their body for a second. But once I did, I relaxed. 
Turns out it wasn't some giant unknown forest spider, but instead was a walking stick, Diaphermera femorata, the only species of walking stick insect in North, northeastern North America. And they are totally harmless to people and quite interesting to watch and examine as they make their way quickly through your hands. When the walking stick got around to my side where I could not see them again, someone noticed that they had five legs, which I was able to look at in the photos that my friend took later on. I've learned that if they lose a leg in their nymphal stages of life, they can regrow them, but if they lose a leg as an adult, then that leg is gone for good. I passed the walking stick off and recalled a thing that I'd read about a couple of years ago, about how walking sticks and others in the order will climb tall trees and drop their eggs about three or four a day, up to an average of 150 per year per female, from great heights down to the forest floor. And in some species, the eggs have a little cap called a capitulum, or pluralized capitula, which is similar in form to the eliosomes of some plant seeds. These eliosomes are rich in fats and proteins, which the ants like to ingest. Some researchers hypothesize that the eggs are collected, or pardon me, the ants collect the eggs from the forest floor, bring them to their nests, eat away the capitula, which are similar to the eliosomes, and then ditch the eggs in the tiny middens of the ants' nests where they sit until they hatch. So I read earlier that they, they, the young can look like ants. So that's a pretty cool evolutionary trait to have these, these eggs that can have this like iliosome like thing, this, this little appendage that grows out of the top that entices the ants to come in, eat that iliosome, and then disperse the egg. Or in, in some plants like uh, bloodroot, uh, disperse the seed and then like spread them around in different places. And I wonder if like, are the ants aware? Are they aware that they are taking this, this thing that looks like a, a seed, but they, do they know it's an insect? Does it smell differently? Is there something about the taste? I'm like, oh, I get this. This is a walking stick. These are, these are tasty. It's like finding a truffle for an ant or something like that. I'm curious, and like, how many more interspecies uh, problem solving and, and interspecies interactions occur like this? And, and it's similar to ants farming aphids, but the, the that seems a bit more tangible and like quicker results than this iliosome and then storing the seed. And then how did, how, like, I mean, these animals have been around for a long time. I think it's like 65 million years, more than that. So, you know, you got a long time to evolve and change your form. And like, because they're insects, they, they have many generations and the generations adapt and new genes take over. Well, let me read something actually. I'm gonna read something about this, which talks about exactly what I'm getting into now. 
And that's from uh, the book, The Complete Insect by David A. Grimaldi, also from Princeton University Press. And this book just came out. And if I can endorse this book, I want to endorse this book. This book is great. I, I want to learn more about insects. I never went to university to learn about insects, but I want to learn about insects. I know I, I struggle to. There's so much going on, as you've heard me talk already about like the anatomy of insects, the orders and family groups um, of insects, how widely dispersed they are. But at the same time, they, they are the most abundant um, group of, of animals on earth we should know about insects you know uh beetles coleoptera where, where which make up a huge chunk of the insect world i think it's like one in one in six species on earth of animal is a beetle so we should know more about the insects if we want to know more about our non or human or other than human neighbors um and this book is really cool again the the, the, com the complete insect and the subtitle is anatomy physiology evolution and ecology so it's like a uh uh an entry-level uh textbook an entry-level textbook to to insects and how to understand who they are and i'm only at the beginning i'm only at the section on which is explaining the different orders but there's there's a bunch of sections in the book, um, and it, it's pretty pretty cool. So chapter one is like just an introduction. Chapter two is structure and function, so like looking at a lot of the, uh, the, the, the anatomy, and then getting a little bit more into the anatomy of wings and flight in chapter three. Chapter four is development, metamorphosis, and growth, how they change their form, how they, how they grow. Um, Five chapter five is their natural history, so how they interact with the world around them, and what does their life cycle look like a bit more, and what what do they do with their lives? Uh, and the chapter six is the impacts on humans and the environment, and there's a a glossary. There's sections on further reading. There's tons and tons and tons of large full color photographs, diagrams, and uh, tables. And it's it's beautiful. It could be like a coffee table thing, but for me, it's it's not quite a coffee table thing. It's like I think that diminishes what I'm getting at. This is beautiful in the context that I think it's rendering some of the stuff that you might find in a textbook a little bit more accessible. And I need that. I want that out of a book that I'm learning about insects on because I still find insects challenging. So this book already is really good and really helpful for me to learn about it. So, yeah, again, The Complete Insect, Anatomy, Physiology, Evolution, and Ecology by David A. Grimaldi. And it's on Princeton University Press. So check it out if you want. Ask your library to buy it. Go out and get it yourself. But what I wanted to get at when I was talking about the evolution of insects and how they how they change the form, they can adapt so quickly because they're always, uh, the new generations develop all the time. When it comes to stick insects, it's really interesting because uh, the species here, you know, they don't have wings, but then they might've had wings, 
lost wings, and then some of the species that do have wings got their wings back. So they evolved them away, and then they evolved them again. And I'm not, I don't know genetics that well. I don't know the complex series of evolution. I understand like an overall structure that maybe we all learned in school, uh, primary school, but I don't know the complexity of it. So I thought this, this book is also helpful for that, and especially on the subject of stick insects. So it says, re-evolving the wings. Stick insects, or the order Phasmatidea, had a common ancestor with wings. But a majority of the 3,000 species of stick insects have lost their wings, and some have regained them. How do wing losses and reversal of this loss and re-evolution of the wings occur? Re-evolving wings after a loss seems unlikely at first. Once a wing is lost, the genes responsible for patterning these wings would accumulate random mutations over generations. And because they are unused, there would be no natural selection against these random mutations. Thus, the genes that correctly pattern the wings could be lost or degraded, and the population would only have individuals with mutated genes unable to develop the wings properly. However, we now know that the wings are not a singular appendage, but derived from two structures of the thorax, the notum and the pleuron. Even when the wings are absent, insects experience significant natural selection on these structures. A mutated notum or pleuron could prevent an insect from walking, eating, or mating correctly. The selection of these body parts would eliminate random mutations from spreading, even when the wings are absent. Some animal structures like eyes are patterned by a master control gene, quote unquote, that determines the location of the structure and directs the expression of other genes. It is possible that such gene controls the development of wings and could explain why re-evolving wings is so easy that the stink stick insects alone have done so at least four times. So they've lost this trait of, of wings, so many of them, but then they got them back and then they lose them and then they got them back and then they lose them and then they got them back. And it's, it's, it's it's kind of mind-blowing, and I want to understand it more. Would it be less mind-blowing if I understand it more, or would it be more so um, that to lose lose this, this amazing function of wings, but then to, to, to develop them again over millions of years? I don't know. I don't know. One thing I do know is that the stick insect here in in northeastern north america in southern ontario um does not have wings they do not have wings diaphemeria uh femorata does not have wings and i think that's that's important to note and um i'm just interested and curious about how the evolutionary process works around wings and genes in general and insects in general because it's something I don't know much about. But I'm hoping that complete insect book, the complete insect, uh, helps me learn a little bit more about it. And if you have suggestions on learning more about 
genetic development and, and how that shapes uh, the bodies of organisms, please teach me. I, I don't know enough, and I want to. Speaking of genes and eggs and such, in the book Tracks and Sign of Insects by Charlie Eisman and Noah Charney, uh, they describe the the eggs a bit better. And again, this is now, oh, now i got to go find an egg. I'm going to go to all the oaks I know and just start searching at the base um, in a couple of days because if these stick insects tend to drop them right around now, six to ten days after mating, and I saw them mating on Thursday, Thursday, September 14th. So by the 20th, we should be looking for uh, stick insect eggs, which is kind of cool. I would love to find some. I wonder if I know anybody who's reared them. Stick insects, Phasmotidae, Phasmotidae, have distinctive, fairly large eggs with a definite circular lid reminiscent of of those on true egg true bug eggs they are hard and thick-shelled often described as seed-like unlike the eggs of other terrestrial insects they are usually simply dropped to the ground from above at random lutz in 1948 described finding northern walking sticks so abundant that the falling eggs sounded like rain in this species the eggs are oval two to three millimeters long by one to two millimeters wide with an oblique lid. They may be glossy black, brown, or gray. Eggs of other species are variously narrow, boxy, and rough textured. Not all are simply dropped. The Colorado short-horned water walking stick, for instance, glues its eggs to a substrate. It inhabits grasslands, and its smooth gray eggs resemble grass seeds. 6.2 by 1.2 millimeters. Amisogene cuckoo wasps develop inside the eggs of walking sticks. So they got many species that are taking advantage of these insect eggs. The wasps, the ants. I wonder if the grass gets something out of it when it glues the eggs. I wonder if when the eggs hatch, do the nymphs, do they eat the grass, the dead grass that it was on. Man, the more you know, you know, it's just totally so many more questions all the time. Can't stop, won't stop. Um, again, I'm just going to read this last section on the mimicry in eggs because that seems to be a, a, focus, a focal point for the walking sticks. Not only their body shape, but the size and shape of the eggs themselves. And the book, this book again, The Complete Insect Anatomy, Physiology, Evolution, and Ecology, by Princeton University Press, uh, has this beautiful section on walking stick eggs. And, and it's... it's it's lovely to look at and lovely examples of what these these eggs look like. So cool. Stick insects are herbivorous insects living in plant habitats that have evolved a high degree of mimicry. 
They are known to melt into the landscape among plant branches and leaves. What is less known is the mimicry they also evolved with their eggs. Phasmid eggs have an incredible diversity of shape that is specific to each species, and many of them look like plant seeds. Interestingly, seeds are not inconspicuous. So why do stick insects with their capacity to hide have eggs shaped as something that can bring attention? These seed-shaped eggs too have a modified, also have a modified structure on the tip called a capitula. This appendage may actually actually mimic similar structure in seeds that attracts ants and is filled with fat. Ants find the seeds, bring them back to the underground colony as a food source. With stick insect eggs, the ants are tricked to bring these eggs too, providing them with protection against predators and especially parasitic wasps. So again, I wonder if they're tricked or do they know? I think often in our, our readings of, of, of other animals, we, we think of them as naive, naive, we think of them as dumb, we think of them as not understanding the things that we understand instead of understanding things in different ways. And so even this book, I like this book a lot, but I, I see that like, mm, are they tricked? That, that's, that's sort of an assumption there. That's a, well, I can't remember in arguments and debate when we make an assumption uh, that the reader is forced to accept like that. It's just, yeah, I don't know. can't remember what it's called, but I find that awkward and strange and I don't like that. But, yeah. I hope to learn so much more about stick insects because they're around. They are kind of cryptic. We don't see them that often. Uh, again, when I first saw mine, I, I thought they were I thought they were only a tropical species. I thought, they, you know, they don't exist around here. But they do. And that's so cool. I wonder, if they overwinter as eggs, do they die? How long does it take their body to break down? Would I find a dead stick insect? Could I preserve it somehow and study it some more? Do they shrivel up? Do they actually end up looking like sticks? Do the legs fall off easier? So many questions. So many questions. I hope I've answered some questions if people have any. I hope I've taught people something a little bit with sharing what I'm learning about with these stick insects. If you want to know more, uh, look in these books, especially I would like to endorse this complete insect book because I'm using it a lot lately to learn more about insects. So it's pretty good. And that other Princeton field guide, Insects of North America uh, by John C. Abbott and Kendra K. Abbott is also pretty good at helping me lately. Yeah. And if you find out anything, if you find out anything, email me, teach me. I want to know. I just what's that Robin Wall camera quote I store my meat in the belly of my brother so that means you know like let's share the knowledge naturalists should store their knowledge in the minds of each other so that way you know I may not remember everything but we can share what we do know and then when I forget one day you can teach me and that way we're all learning together if you want to learn more about the show, you can go to www.tonowtheland.com. 
You can check me out on Instagram at to know the land. I guess not me. It's the show. Um, you can email me at to know the land or pardon me. Yeah. To know the land at gmail.com. I think that's the main way to communicate. Uh, carrier pigeon, you know, to the radio station at the university of Guelph might work. Yeah. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support the show, you can always support the show. There's a, a donate button on the website to know the land.com forward slash donate the Patreon account, PayPal. I figured out how to use the QR code. Wow. So easy, but I'm not that smart. So yeah, you, there's lots of ways to help. If you want to do that, recommend the show to your pals, put it on when you're on a road trip and you, you need some distraction. I don't know, whatever. I've been listening to podcasts lately while I bake apple crisps. So check that out. Listen to the radio. I find my friends listen to it a lot by accident because they're just getting in the car driving. And they're like, oh, it's on the radio. So now they're listening. So if that works for you, keep up with it. Keep up with it. That's it. Take care.